0: to the uh, fourth and final head and neck quiz. We'll start with the questions, just 15 questions and then I'll give the answers at the end. You might like to write these down or I'll leave a copy of them on the Anatopod uh, Facebook site. Um, Question 1. The elevators of the larynx, A, only act directly on the laryngeal apparatus. B, have elements which insert into the posterior lamina and horns of the thyroid cartilage. Do not inc- C, do not include the geneohyoid muscle. And D, are innervated by a single compartmental nerve of the branchial arch. There may be some questions where no answers are correct or where uh, multiple answers are correct, by the way. Let's scroll down this a little bit. Question two, laryngeal inlet muscles, A, include the oblique arotenoids, B, run from the muscular process lying at the front of the arotenoid cartilage, C, has the aryepiglottic muscles and the oblique arotenoids which function as a sphincter, and D, has a muscular attachment to the contralateral corniculate cartilage. Question 3. The extrinsic membranes, ligaments of the larynx, include A. The thyrohyoid B. The hyoepiglottic C. The quadrangular D. The cricothyroid E. The cricovocal membrane Okay, you should know that one. Question 4 a tumor in the sinus of morgani will anatomically a affect hearing b the sev- affect the seventh nerve c affect swallowing or d result in facial pain question 5 the palatine tonsil a has a blood supply from multiple separate arteries b has venous drainage into the lingual vein C. Does not have discrete borders. D. Usually drains via a single tonsillar duct. Try and think about the answers to these and why things are either correct or why they're not correct. And if they are correct, why they're particularly correct, all the reasons. Or if they're not correct, what are the reasons that they're false? Question 6. The pharyngeal nerve plexus A innervates all of the pharyngeal muscles. B. Has central cell bodies in the nucleus of the tractus solitarius. C. Unites the pharyngeal branches of the uh, vagus and glossopharyngeal nerves. D. Incorporates the cranial accessory. And E. Is purely efferent, or efferent if you like that uh, pronunciation. Question 7. The palatopharyngeus muscle, A, arises from separate bony and soft tissue heads, B, forms the medial tonsillar pillar, C, is inserted into the posterior border of the thyroid lamina, D, has posterior fibres which merge with the inferior constrictor muscle, E, can both elevate and depress the palate, and F, has no connections with the salpingopharyngeus or the stylopharyngeus. Question 8. The levator palati muscle, A, takes origin from the bone of the carotid canal, B, is separated from the pharyngotympanic tube, C, runs forward through the sling of the palatopharyngeus muscle, and D, is extrapharyngeal. Question 9. Concerning the eruption of teeth A. The incisors precede the molars B. The canines appear before the premolars C. The upper teeth usually precede their opposite number in the lower jaw and D. The first permanent molar only erupts after the shedding of deciduous teeth It's a bit complicated to remember those. Question 10, concerning the parasympathetic ganglia at the head and neck, A, each has traversing mixed sympathetic and sensory routes, B, the pterygopalatine ganglion has a combined parasympathetic and sympathetic route, C, they have no motor route connections, and D, uh is distributed from the ciliary ganglion in the long ciliary nerves or via the long ciliary nerves. Question 11. Regarding the ophthalmic artery, the vessel emerges... A, the vessel emerges in the orbit. B, has a single branch, the central artery of the retina. C, Anastomoses with branches of the external carotid artery. And D, The central artery of the retina passes medial and inferior to the optic nerve. Question 12. The nasociliary nerve, A, becomes the anterior ethmoidal nerve. B, is crossed by the optic nerve and the ophthalmic artery. (coughs) C, passes medially between the superior oblique and the superior rectus muscles. D, before entering the ethmoid, gives off a branch supplying the lacrimal sac, and E, its posterior ethmoidal branch is given off outside of the muscular cone. Question 13. Tributaries of the internal jugular vein include A, the superior petrosal sinus, B, the pharyngeal plexus, C, the inferior thyroid veins, and D, the jugular lymph trunk. Question 14. Cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, A, passes from the lateral ventricle to the third ventricle via the foramen of Lushka. B, passes from the third to the fourth ventricle through the aqueduct of Sylvius. C, has a variable production rate affecting the intracranial pressure. And D, flows from the fourth ventricle via the OBEX. And question 15, regarding the sphenoid bone, osfica- A. is wholly endochondral, B. Has no border with the occipital bone, C. The pterygoid processes contribute to the pterygoid canal, and D. Forms the inferior orbital fissure between its lesser and greater wings. I'll give you a little bit of thinking music and you can um, uh, think on on that and I'll have some answers uh, over the other side. Good luck. Uh, Welcome back. Uh, That was uh, Pierre Gintz, Morning Mood by uh, Edvard Grieg. Uh, Let's go back to these um, uh, questions. Uh, The easiest way is actually either if you write them down or you have a copy of them on the... um, I'll post one on the Anatopod um, Facebook site. It's now called MetaSite, I suppose it is. Um, there may be, as I say, no answers that are correct, uh, there may be multiple answers or multiple questions that are correct, and I want you really to know the reasons why these things are correct, the kind of backstory around the anatomy of the reasons why something's incorrect as well. It's not just a matter of saying, well, that's, I think that's right or I think that's wrong, it's just you need to understand why things are right or wrong. Some of the questions are a little bit more obscure. That's deliberately designed to uh, probe a bit more anatomy, as this is the fourth head and neck quiz. Um, question one is the elevators of the larynx a only act directly on the laryngeal apparatus. Well, the elevators, just as the depressors are both direct and indirect, So the only there is wrong hyoid elevators elevate the larynx. The direct ones include the thyrohyoid, the stylopharyngeus, the palatopharyngeus, the salpingopharyngeus, and that part, the upper part of the inferior constrictor, which is the thyropharyngeus component. So although the question is, it's wrong, but we want to know what does directly or indirectly elevate the larynx. Uh, Really, in this case, the direct elevators. So the elevators of the larynx B have elements which insert into the posterior lamina and horns of the thyroid cartilage. Well, that's correct. The salpingofaryngous, the pharyngeus, and the pharyngeus do precisely that. So much so that, uh, as I said in the podcast on the larynx, if you remember that Ray Last referred to these muscles as the stylo salpingo and laryngeus muscles. So C, the elevators of the larynx do not include the geneohyoid muscle. Well, that's obviously incorrect. All of the indirect elevators act on the hyoid to elevate it, so those would include the geneohyoid, but also the mylohyoid, the digastric and the stylohyoid would be amongst that group. So again, we're just talking about direct and indirect elevators of the larynx or of the hyoid, and and, uh, that's really the knowledge of this area. Everything kind of suprahyoid muscles, if you like. And then the elevators of the larynx D are innervated by a single compartmental nerve of the branchial arch. It's a bit of a strangely worded question, but it's incorrect. There are obviously multiple branchial arch nerves in this region and uh, which innervate the laryngeal elevator. So our knowledge of embryology is that the stylopharyngeus, which elevates the larynx is part of the glossopharyngeal nerve, or the third branchial arch, and you've got the stylohyoid, the posterior belly of the digastric, which of course um, uh, is part of the second uh, uh, branchial arch, and that's innervated by the facial nerve, and then you've also got the mylohyoid, uh, the anterior belly of digastric as well, which are innervated by the mandibular nerve, uh, which is the first branchial arch, so um, again, it's just a, a deliberate part of the question asking you what you know about the embryology of the arches. So, question two: Laryngeal inlet muscles a include the oblique arytenoids. Um, so the inlet muscles do include the aryepiglottic muscles and they do include the oblique arotenoids and the thyroepiglottic muscles, so that's correct. B, the laryngeal inlet muscles run from the muscular process which lies at the front of the arotenoid cartilage. Well, The aryepiglottic fold contains the aryepiglottic muscle that runs from the side of the epiglottis to the back of the arotenoid cartilage. Where the muscular process is located so it's not at the front of the arytenoid cartilages it's at the back uh, see then the laryngeal inlet muscles has the areopiglottic muscles and the oblique arytenoids functioning as a sphincter uh, that is correct we've already said that the oblique arytenoids are part of the inlet and they do function like a closing sphincter by opposing the rotary action of the arytenoid cartilages and by drawing the epiglottis downwards where it actually comes into contact with the arotenoids. In fact in point of fact these muscles are so efficient at forming a sphincteric like closure of the inlet that you don't actually need an epiglottis to do it. And finally D, the laryngeal has, uh, inlet muscles, has a muscular attachment to the contralateral corniculate cartilage. D is correct also, the oblique arotenoid, there it is again, passes from the muscular process across to the contralateral corniculate cartilage. So these muscles are actually quite superficial and they lie in front of the transverse arotenoids, uh, clearly sort of cross-drawing the inlet into closure. Question 3, the extrinsic membranes and ligaments of the larynx include... A, the thyrohyoid, B, the hyoepiglottic, C, the quadrangular membrane, D, the cricothyroid, E, the cricovocal membrane. Well, guys, we we know this, yes? The extrinsic ligaments are the thyrohyoid membrane that lies well outside, and as we remember, pierced by the superior laryngeal vessels and the internal laryngeal nerve, the cricotracheal membrane and the thyroepiglottic ligament. And the intrinsics are the quadrangular membrane and the cricothyroid ligament, which in its upper form, uh, or in its upper part, forms the vocal folds. That is, it's the cricovocal membrane. So the extrinsic stuff is the thyrohyoid there, as you can see at the top, the hyoepiglottic. Uh, The intrinsics are the quadrangular, the cricothyroid, the cricovocal. Question four, a tumour in the sinus of Morgani will anatomically, A, affect hearing. We remember the sinus is that area between the hammock origin of the superior constrictor and the base of the skull. So A is correct because there's a conductive deafness. That's where the pharyngotympanic tube comes out. So that is uh, actually going to be involved. B, it'll affect the seventh nerve. Um, Well, that's not correct. The ninth nerve is the one affected because that runs in that space. And so there'll be palatal asymmetry. And that's due to actually infiltration of the levator palati muscle, um, not due to its denervation uh, because that's affected by the pharyngeal plexus. But the ninth nerve can be affected there as well. Uh, which would affect the sylopharynge, no way of determining that, but problems with swallowing and sensation, Uh, but it's not the seventh nerve. A more extensive variance um, of this tumour, by the way, could invade the medial pterygoid and could present with trismus. So the palatal asymmetry is due to infiltration of the levator palati, not due to its denervation, obviously. C, affects swallowing. Well, swallowing obviously can be affected by a nasopharyngeal carcinoma of this region. And D, may result in facial pain. And that's true. Facial pain may occur in the territory of the mandibular nerve. The foramen of is actually right next door and the pain usually in this so-called trotter syndrome usually ultimately gives way to facial anaesthesia. Um if it's extensive enough actually the v2 area around the frame and rotundum can be affected and there's a variant of this called jacods jacods syndrome where there's a tumor at the middle cranial fossa and that can involve the 2nd to the 6th cranial nerves um, the clinicians then generally should also in this uh, tumor deliberately look for mental nerve anesthesia So it's a little bit more complicated, the answer to that question. Question five, the palatine tonsil. A has a blood supply from multiple separate arteries. Well, that's correct. There are actually five arteries that typically supply the palatine tonsil. There's the dorsal lingual artery, which is a branch of the lingual. There's the ascending palatine, a branch of the facial. The tonsillar branch of the facial artery which is a specific tonsillar artery, the ascending pharyngeal artery, which is a direct branch of the ECA, the external carotid, and the lesser palatine artery, which is a branch of the descending palatine, or really a branch of the ultimate branch of the maxillary artery. Palatine tonsil B has venous drainage into the lingual vein. That's correct too. The tonsil's venous drainage is via a peritonsillar of venous plexus, which does drain into the lingual and pharyngeal veins. C, the palatine tonsil, does not have discrete borders. Um, I'd say the C is kind of strictly wrong, although the tonsil can extend into the palate, but the, the, the tenor of the question is, is incorrect. It, typically, the tonsil is classified as having borders, poles and surfaces. And D, the palatine tonsil usually drains via a single tonsillar duct. Well, that's certainly wrong. The pharyngeal mucosa is typically perforated by about 20 tonsillar crypts on its medial surface with a large upper pole intratonsillar cleft that's actually the embryonic remnant of the second pharyngeal arch. So uh, it's a little bit more complicated answer as well. Question 6. The pharyngeal nerve plexus A innervates all of the pharyngeal muscles. Well that's not strictly correct. The stylopharyngeus is of course an example that is innervated by 9. The cricopharyngeus may be supplied also by the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So it's strictly not a correct answer. B. The pharyngeal nerve plexus has central cell bodies in the nucleus of the tractus solitarius. Well that's Incorrect. The cell bodies are in the nucleus ambiguous. The tractus solitarius or the gustatory nucleus is nearby. That's the central link for taste. And C, the pharyngeal nerve plexus unites the pharyngeal branches of 9 and 10. That's certainly correct. Uh, There are also uniting branches of the cervical sympathetics there in that plexus. And then D incorporates the cranial accessory, the pharyngeal nerve plexus, that's certainly correct, that links the cranial accessory nerve. And E is purely efferent, that's incorrect, 9 is afferent, but 10 is both efferent and afferent. The mucosa of the nasopharynx is innervated here by V2 uh, through the pterygopalatine ganglion with 9 innervating the vollecular, uh, the internal laryngeal nerve, the rest of the pharyngeal mucosa is innervated by the internal and recurrent laryngeal nerves. Um, Question 7. The palatopharyngeus muscle, A, arises from separate bony and soft tissue heads. That's correct. There are typically two heads. One comes from the palatal aponeurosis and the other from the bony hard palate. And those two heads Embrace the levata palati, which is kind of an easier way to remember it. Uh, the palatopharyngeus B forms the medial tonsillar pillar. Well, that's incorrect. It's the lateral tonsillar pillar between palatoglossal arch and palatopharyngeal arch. C is inserted into the posterior border of the thyroid lamina. Well, that's correct. As last refers to what I've already said as the palatolaryngous, a direct laryngeal elevator. D, has posterior fibres which merge with the inferior constrictor muscle. That's certainly correct. And E, can both elevate and depress the palate. Seems a bit of a strange question, but it is correct too. The paradoxical action depends on where the muscle acts. The anterior part of palatopharyngeus sort of bows the palate up like a concave shell, uh, and its most anterior fibres elevate the palate but the very back fibres, actually, when they contract, depress it. So this dual action of palatopharyngeus is true. And then F has no connections, that's palatopharyngeus, with the salpingopharyngeus or stylopharyngeus. That's wrong, as the salpingopharyngeus joins the palatopharyngeus superiorly, the stylopharyngeus joins it inferiorly. That's the posterolateral fusion point of the pharynx, at the level between the middle and superior constrictors, which is about the level of the body of the hyoid bone. So, uh, F is incorrect. Question 8. The levator palati muscle A takes origin from the bone of the carotid canal. Well, that's incorrect. The muscle takes its origin from the quadrate area of the apex of the petrous temporal bone which is in front of the carotid canal. and. B is separated from the pharyngotympanic tube. That's also incorrect because the muscle takes its origin from the medial aspect of the cartilaginous portion of the tube. Um, C, it runs forward through the sling of the palatopharyngeus muscle. We've already said that's correct. The levator palati runs between the two heads of the palatopharyngeus. And D is extra pharyngeal. Now, that's incorrect. It's entirely intrapharyngeal, unlike the tensor pilates. So that has to do with the origins of the pharyngobasilar fascia. Question 9. That's a little bit obscure for those who aren't dental, I suppose. Concerning the eruption of teeth, A. The incisors precede the molars. That's, that's true. The lower centrals. The first incisor is about six months, then the upper centrals, the upper laterals and the lower laterals before the first molar, which appears at a year. B, the canines appear before the premolars. So B is incorrect because the canines appear at about 11 years or so after the first and second premolars. The permanent molars or the wisdoms are later at about 12 or even a bit later. C, the upper teeth usually precede their opposite number in the lower jaw. So C is incorrect. It's actually the other way around. Uh, The upper teeth precede. And D, the first permanent molar only erupts after the shedding of deciduous teeth. That's also incorrect. The first permanent molar typically erupts before the shedding of any deciduous teeth and after the decidua are replaced the second premolar erupts. Question 10. Concerning the parasympathetic ganglia of the head and neck, this is more the sort of thing we're uh, interested in up our alley, each has traversing mixed sympathetic and sensory roots. That is correct. The only nerves which synapse are, of course, the parasympathetics. That's within a, a parasympathetic ganglion. But the ganglia have sensory roots and sympathetic connections which run through like a relay, but they certainly, of course, don't synapse there. B, the pterygopalatine ganglion has a combined parasympathetic and sympathetic root. Each of these ganglia is a little bit different, and that's the different thing about the pterygopalatine. That is correct. Um, With the pterygopalatine, the unique feature is that the sympathetic and parasympathetic roots Combine as the nerve of the pterygoid canal, the so called Vidian nerve. So there is the deep petrosal or sympathetic root that combines in there with the um, um, greater petrosal, uh, and that's the preganglionic component to the pterygopalatine ganglion. C, they have no motor root connections. That's wrong motor root, for example, of the otic ganglion, and again another unique feature of the head and neck ganglion, runs from the nerve to the medial pterygoid, and it runs through innervating the branchial musculature, that's the muscles of mastication, but also as the motor innervation to the tensors, tensor tympani and tensor pilates. And then finally D is distributed from the ciliary ganglion in the long ciliary nerves. Well, it's distributed via the short ciliary nerves. Each of these ganglia, as I said, are a little bit different. The palatine ganglion has a mixed autonomic nerve, the vidian nerve. The palatine is the one that has the V2 to the V1 jump to the lacrimal gland. The otic has a motor branch, as mentioned. The ciliary has sensory and sympathetic roots. So look just not at what's going on in the ganglia themselves, just as a synapse of the parasympathetics, but what else is traversing it and what's unique about each one of these little ganglia. Question 11. Regarding the ophthalmic artery, the vessel emerges in the orbit. That's A. That's incorrect. The artery actually comes off the internal carotid artery as it emerges from the roof of the cavernous sinus, passing above the optic nerve in a little tube-shaped dural sleeve. Um, B has a single branch to the ophthalmic artery, the central artery of the retina. Well, that's false. The artery has actually about 10 little branches, and they include the central artery of the retina. But the branches accompany the nasociliary nerve branches, and so therefore they they have the sort of same names. They go to the frontal and lacrimal nerve, the ethmoid air cells as anterior and posterior, the lateral side of the the nose, the eyelids, the forehead. There's about 10 separate little branches, so the anterior ethmoidal, the posterior ethmoidal, the frontal, the lacrimal, the lateral nasal, the infratrochlea and the supraorbital supratrochlea, so on. And then C, anastomosis with branches of the external carotid artery. The short answer is obviously correct, but how so specifically? You should just run through these in your head now. There's a, an anastomosis between the ophthalmic artery and the maxillary, facial, and superficial temporal. So the branches, for example, as i mentioned, are the posterior ethmoidal, lacrimal, supraorbital, supratrochlear, the short ciliary, the long ciliary, the dorsal, nasal, the infratrochlear, the central artery of the retina, and the posterior ciliary, or so-called choroidal. Uh, those latter are particularly important in optic nerve supply. And then finally, regarding the ophthalmic artery, D, the central artery of the retina, passes medial and inferior to the optic nerve. D is correct, and it enters typically about halfway between the optic canal and the eye. So we're nearly getting there. Question 12, the nasociliary nerve. A becomes the anterior ethmoidal nerve. That's correct. That changes its name. It leaves the orbit giving off the external nasal nerve. B is crossed by the optic nerve and the ophthalmic artery. That's wrong. It's the reverse. The nasociliary nerve crosses the optic nerve with the ophthalmic artery intervening. C passes medially between the superior oblique and the superior rectus muscles. That's correct and it becomes there, the anterior ethmoidal nerve, where it's at the roof of the ethmoidal labyrinth, crossing the cribriform plate on one side of the crista D, before entering the ethmoid, gives off a branch supplying the lacrimal sac. And that's usually correct. The nerve becomes here, as I've said, the anterior ethmoidal nerve, and just here gives off the infratrochlear nerve. There's often a small vessel accompanying uh, that region and it innervates the area of the lacrimal sac, it also supplies the blood supply of the lacrimal sac and also the conjunctiva here and under the medial palpable ligament to the skin of the upper eyelid and nasal bridge. And then E, the nasociliary nerve, its posterior ethmoidal branch, is given off outside of the muscular cone. That's actually incorrect. The branch is intraconal. There's often, again, a little companion artery which supplies the posterior ethmoidal air cells and the sphenoidal sinus. So it's a little bit more complicated, not just the answers of knowing whether things are correct. We want to know why they're correct or why something's incorrect. Question 13. Tributaries of the internal jugular vein that's straightforward, include the superior petrosal sinus, well that's wrong, the the inferior petrosal sinus, which joins the jugular bulb to become the IJV. So the IJV doesn't become the IJV really until it is uh, below the base of the skull, and therefore the most superior tributary is the inferior petrosal sinus. Uh, the pharyngeal plexus, obviously that's correct. The pharynx opens, dra- often drains, as a couple of very stout veins into the internal jugular vein. That connection's important to the middle cranial fossa joining the cavernous sinus. The tributaries of the internal jugular vein, the inferior thyroid veins, well that's obviously incorrect. The superior and middle thyroid veins drain into the internal jugular The middle thyroid vein is actually the the first thing you've usually got to divide so that once that little stout short vein is divided, going straight into the IJV, that allows the thyroid lobe to be lifted up. The inferior thyroid veins are different, as we know, and they drain into the left brachiocephalic or left inominate vein. And that's a point of difference, an important point of embryological difference between the left and right brachiocephalic or innominate vein. So the left brachiocephalic runs all the way across the upper chest to join the right brachiocephalic at about the second intercostal space uh, and becomes the superior vena cava. And uh, that's because there is a left superior vena cava that forms fetally but that regresses. And so therefore the left brachiocephalic vein runs all the way across uh, the chest to join the right and become the SVC. And as a result, the tributaries of the left brachiocephalic vein are different to those of the right. Both of them drain the vertebral vein, uh, but the left brachiocephalic vein drains the uh, left superior intercostal vein, for example. It will also drain uh, below the one or two stout thymic veins, and the inferior thyroid veins will drain below the neck into the upper chest into the left brachiocephalic And that's, as I said, because of the difference in embryology. The regressing left superior vena cava means that the left brachycephalic has to run all the way across to join its fellow on the right, and therefore it has different tributaries. If we think about it, it's the same system in the abdomen as well. The left renal vein runs all the way across to the right side into the inferior vena cava, and that's because there's a left inferior vena cava system that forms but that regresses and so therefore the left renal vein runs all the way across and its tributaries are different to the right renal vein. So therefore the left renal vein picks up the left gonadal vein uh, ovarian or testicular and picks up the left suprarenal vein. And so therefore these are the embryologic differences uh, between these. And so it's not just a matter of knowing these things, it's sort of understanding why they are like they are. And finally D, Tributaries of the internal jugular vein include the jugular lymph trunk, and that can certainly be correct. Occasionally there is a a jugular lymphatic trunk that can enter here, and that can have significance for lymphatic drainage uh, or lymphatic leaks uh, in the neck because of that uh, embryologic uh, or that anatomic variation. Question 14. CSF, or cerebrospinal fluid A, passes from the lateral ventricle to the third ventricle via the foramen of Monroe not um, the foramen of Lushka. Monroe was actually this was Monroe Secundus who was the son of the uh, inaugural dean of the Edinburgh Medical School Secundus uh, probably uh, pilfered uh, this it's often called the foramen of Monroe but it was probably described by Galen um, uh, over a millennium earlier Secundus was known for stealing a lot of um, bits of anatomy and putting his name onto them. Cerebrospinal fluid B passes from the third to the fourth ventricle via the aqueduct of Sylvius. That's certainly correct. C has a variable production rate affecting intracranial pressure. Well, that's false, actually. CSF pressure affects intracranial pressure, certainly. But one of the problems in the design is that CSF production is pretty constant at around about 0.2 to 0.7 mils a minute, around about six or 700 mils per day in the adult. That's actually an unfortunate condition because um, in situations where there's raised intracranial pressure, CSF production doesn't slow off, it, it persists. And so the pressure-volume relationship is dependent on the so-called Monroe-Kelly doctrine that has the cerebral blood volume the CSF volume and the cerebral weight all constant in a sense. That co- combination is constant. And because CSF is produced at a constant rate, uh, what happens is that ultimately as pressures, uh, as, as volumes uh, kind of expand a little bit, the pressure ultimately goes up exponentially. And uh, what effectively happens there is that uh, you could look at cerebral perfusion pressure, which actually equals the mean arterial blood pressure minus the intracranial pressure. And the intracranial pressure in in certain circumstances, really in brain death, becomes so high um, uh, that um, effectively there's a zero cerebral perfusion pressure. CPP equals mean arterial blood pressure minus cerebral perfusion pressure. And so there's no cerebral perfusion. That's the way the system is structured. In fact, in very old days, what happened was that in order to diagnose brain death, a carotid arteriogram or angiogram was performed, and it would stop at the jaw. In other words, there was no cerebral perfusion at all in people with raised intracranial pressure, uh, fatally raised intracranial pressure. Uh, Fun one: Cerebrospinal fluid D flows from the fourth ventricle via the obex. Well, what's the OBEX? The OBEX is actually that little entry point that goes down to the central canal, the slightly widened area down to the central canal of the spinal cord. Uh, So that's true. The majority of the CSF passes through the apertures. That's the median aperture of Majondi and uh, the two lateral apertures of Lushka. And that allows the CSF to enter the cisterna magna and the cerebellopontine cisterns, respectively. So you just want to run over the CSF direction of CSF and how it's absorbed. It gives you an idea of the types of hydrocephalus as well, anatomically speaking. And question 15, regarding the sphenoid bone, ossification is wholly endochondral. That's not correct. Ossification is actually largely endochondral, but the pterygoid processes of the sphenoid ossify intramembranously. B has no border with the occipital bone. That's incorrect as well. The sphenoid has a common border with the frontal bone, so there's a sphenofrontal suture. It has a border with the parietal bone. There's a sphenoparietal suture. It has a border with the squamous portion of the temporal bone, a so-called sphenosquamosal suture, and also with the occipital bone, a sphenooccipital suture. The sphenoid and occipital bone actually fuse during puberty as a so-called tribasilar bone, and the sphenooccipital suture disappears by the time of skeletal maturity by about twenty-five years of age. So uh, it does have a border with the occipital bone, but a little bit more to know about it. C. The pterygoid processes contribute to the formation of the pterygoid canal. Well, that's obviously correct. The pterygoid processes form the pterygoid canal, but also the palato vaginal canal, which takes the pharyngeal branch of the maxillary artery, the pharyngeal branch over V2, and then D, finally regarding the sphenoid bone, forms the inferior orbital fissure between its lesser and greater wings. That's incorrect. That's the superior orbital fissure. That's uh, just a way, really, for structures, the superior orbital fissure of the middle cranial fossa to pass through to the orbit. That's between the greater and lesser wings of the sphenoid. The inferior orbital fissure is a space between the sphenoid and the maxilla. if you think about it for a second, what passes through that? Nothing much, actually. The zygomatic branch of V2, the ascending branches of the pterygopalatine ganglion, the infraorbital vessels, the inferior ophthalmic vein, uh, that's all, uh, really. Um, If I can finally add that um, that's the last of the head and neck uh, section, Uh, there's still, for this year, a couple of uh, history uh, completions to go before we go into a new history section next year. Next year will be the upper limb. I'm hoping that uh, we can improve our equipment a bit. We've got a, a small crowdfunding going on and if you feel like you'd like to contribute If you can go to HTTPS colon double slash as normal patron.podbean.com slash anatopod. That's patron.podbean.com slash anatopod. Anatopod is all in capitals. Um, We'd really appreciate anything that anyone can give so that we can perhaps convert this to an audiovisual channel.